Grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Now, if you've been coming here for some time, you've probably noticed that I start every sermon with that exact same way. Have a seat, grab your Bible, and turn to Exodus chapter 1. It's not because I can't think of anything else to say, even though sometimes that's true. It's because I want you to know that is the most important thing we will be doing over the next half hour, uh, opening God's Word. One of the values here at our church, one of our 12 core values, is expository preaching. Expository preaching, that's different from what uh, someone asked me recently when I used that word. They said, you say suppository preaching? I said, no, that's different and much less comfortable. But expository preaching, that is what a lot of us would consider the preaching of the Bible. It's when we take a particular text, walk through it, and see what God says to us today. And the point of the text is the point of the sermon. That's important to us here at Blue Valley. That's something we have done and will always do. And I want to encourage you. One of the ways you can help us to value that value is by bringing your Bible. Bring your Bible with you to church. If you use your phone or your tablet, that's okay. If you can handle the distraction and put it on airplane mode, that's fine with me. But if not, bring your paper copy of God's Word. Open it up. When I say to open it up, hold it open and see and look for yourself what is being said so, you know, I'm not just making this stuff up and going my own way. Uh, that's the whole idea, that we want to preach not what uh, the pastor thinks or what the culture thinks or what sounds good or what I think you need to hear, but really preaching God's word, all of it. So with that said, again, I hope you found Exodus chapter 1. Every day when my daughter gets home from school, she pulls out a stack of papers from her book bag. And because she's in kindergarten, most of those are pictures that she's drawn of our family or uh, worksheets where she's learning letters or how to count numbers. But recently, on one of her papers, she had to write down what she wants to be when she grows up. And she had to do it using nouns. Are you familiar with a noun? It is a person, place, or thing. And she, she had to write down one person in one place doing one thing. So she filled in the blanks, and I read it. It said, when she grows up, she wants to be a chef working at McDonald's making French fries. Yeah. Now, let me just say, there is nothing wrong with that job. I am thankful for the amazing people who make delicious French fries. But I did not have the heart to tell her that we don't normally refer to those people as chefs. (laughs) Maybe we should. And I also didn't have the heart to tell her that by the time she grows up, it will probably be a robot making those French fries. But I am guessing, as my daughter gets older and kind of hoping, that her future plans will change a bit. In my experience, that's the way life works Our hopes, our dreams, the way we envision the future and things turning out is always changing, especially when you're young and in kindergarten. My mom told me when I was in kindergarten, my dream was to be a lifeguard and a painter. Then in middle school, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I thought that'd be cool. And then I got to high school, you know, where you get serious, thinking about your career. And when I went to tour the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, I told them I was going to study exercise science, (laughs) which is ironic because I don't exercise. But uh, then I decided I wanted to be a forensic biologist because, well, I love the show CSI. And then lastly, I landed on engineering because my best friend was going to study engineering and I heard that you could make six figures. So that was my plan. 
I was going to go to good old Rocky Top, and I'd been accepted to the school. My first year had been completely covered uh, of tuition for my freshman year. I, I was going to be smart and successful. That was my plan. And as you can see, uh, God had a different plan. <laughs> like the prophet Jonah, God had to snatch me up and straighten me out a bit. He called me to be a pastor, and he sent me to a Baptist college at the other end of the state of Tennessee. Looking back, I much prefer God's plan. I've seen now that his plan was way better. But i got to tell you, in the moment, trying to figure out what to do and where to go, it did not seem nearly as clear as it does now looking back. I had no idea what God wanted at me. I even wondered at times if he had a plan at all. I'm sure you've been there before, haven't you? You had this picture in your head of what your life would be like at this particular stage, and it didn't end up that way at all. Maybe it ended up better. Maybe it ended up worse. Maybe you're there right now and you're looking around thinking, God, what are you doing? Is this your plan for me? Is there a plan for me? I want you to know that you're not alone in those thoughts and doubts. I've been there. All of us have been there. And God's people in the Bible often lived there. So this morning, as we begin our brand new series in Exodus, we're going to see that theme run throughout this whole book. We're going to see that God clearly has a plan. He's not just winging it. He's not surprised. He's not reacting. He has a plan. But it's rarely very clear to those in the story how he's going to accomplish his plan. Sometimes it seems like his plan has been totally messed up or that he put it away in some eternal filing cabinet and forgot where it is. Today, we get the privilege of seeing how the biblical story ends, but God's people did not always have that knowledge. So they had to learn to trust his plan, even in the unknown. And today, as we consider our own lives, I want to call us to do the same. That's what I want to show you this morning as we take on Exodus chapter 1. We're going to walk through this first chapter piece by piece. And then at the end, we'll see how it connects to our world today. But look with me now at Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. <clears throat> Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, that is a uh, really exciting way to start the book of the Bible, huh? A list of names? What, what is going on here? Well, this is a good time to remember that when you read the Bible, you are never reading in isolation from the rest of the story. The Bible is one big story from Genesis to Revelation. All of it fits together. And this is especially true of Exodus. Because Exodus is a part of the first five books of the Bible, which we call today the Pentateuch. These five books are connected chronologically, which makes Exodus like chapter 2 of a five-chapter story about the making of God's people, Israel. So if we want to understand what's going on here, we got to go back. How far back? we got to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Have you heard that? And the high point of his creation was the creation of people. We know this was the most important part. Because humans were the only ones created in God's image. The first two people ever created, what were their names? 
Yeah, and God gave them a very specific command. Genesis 1.28, God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said to them, he said, This earth is yours. All these animals are yours. Take care of them. And oh, most importantly, I want you to make more people. God wanted Adam and Eve to have babies and for those babies to grow up and have babies and eventually to fill the earth with a people who would know God and worship him and rule the world together on his behalf. But we know things didn't turn out so well. Things went terribly wrong. In fact, Adam and Eve sinned and the entire creation became fallen. Things got so bad that God decided to wipe out everyone on earth with a global flood. But he preserved one man named Noah and his family. And here's what he said to Noah when they stepped off the ark after the flood. Genesis 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then again in verse 7 of chapter 9, And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Once again, we see that God wanted his people to multiply and to make more people. And in this story with Noah, we learn another part to God's plan. He doesn't just want a bunch of people so he can boss them around as some distant deity. But no, in this story with Noah, this is the first time we see the word covenant. A covenant is very important in the Bible. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. And these covenants that God makes with people form the backbone of the whole Bible. And they tell us that God doesn't just want a people or a nation, but he wants a relationship. He wants a family of people who are joined with him and with each other to glorify and enjoy him forever. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 12 and we meet a man named Abram. And God tells Abram that he has picked him to be the father of his people. Through him and his wife Sarah, God would make a great nation and he would bless them and give them this great land to live in. And they in turn would bless all the other nations on the earth. So God took Abram, who he renamed Abraham, to the land he gave him. A land called Canaan, which we'll know later as the promised land. But he told him something strange. Genesis 15, God said, Know, Abraham, for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. God said to Abraham, he said, this land is yours. But it's going to take some time. In fact, your people are going to live in a different land that isn't theirs. And they're going to suffer for 400 years. And then one day, I'm going to bring them out of that land. And they'll come back right here. Until then, once again, God gives Abraham a familiar word. Genesis 7-2. God said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. There it is again. It's that word, multiply. Except this time, God doesn't command Abraham to multiply. Instead, he says, I will multiply you. I'm going to do the multiplying. Because you see, Abraham couldn't multiply. He and his wife Sarah couldn't have kids, and they were past the childbearing age. So if God wanted to continue this plan of making a people for himself, he would have to do it this time miraculously. And he did. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac. 
And Isaac got the same message that Abraham did. You are my people. I am your God. I'm going to multiply you and make you into a great nation. Then Isaac got married and had Jacob. And Jacob got the same message that Abraham and Isaac did. You are my people. I am your God. I'm going to multiply you and make you into a great nation. Except Jacob did everything in his power to mess the whole thing up. Uh, His life was a bit like a reality show. He took that whole multiply thing a bit too literally, and he had 12 sons with four different women, and two of them were sisters. (laughs) Listen, this is a great time to remind you that the Bible characters are not heroes to be emulated. They are really messed up people who God loved and used despite their problems. And that's how God operates And that's very good news for other messed up people like you and me. But anyways, through Jacob, we've got people now, okay? God has multiplied them. Here they are, but they're a big mess. The 12 sons of Jacob decided to try and kill the favorite son named Joseph out of jealousy. He survived, and they sold him off as a slave, and he ended up in a land far away from home called Egypt. Through another series of wild events, Joseph became a big-time ruler in Egypt. He was second in command to Pharaoh, which is what we call the king of Egypt. And he helped save Egypt through a famine. And he not only saved Egypt, but he ended up saving his brothers. Yeah, those very guys that tried to kill him, they reconciled. Joseph forgave them. And he said, hey, I got this really sweet gig down here in Egypt. I've got food and protection, and we can all be together again, one big happy family. Why don't you guys join me? So the other brothers went and told their dad, Jacob, but Jacob was understandably a bit hesitant. He remembered the promise that God had given him to stay in the land of Canaan where he lived. He didn't want to leave the promised land. So here's what God told Jacob in Genesis 46. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And listen to this. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob didn't know all the answers, but he trusted God's plan. He finally had things figured out. And so he went down to Egypt with his entire family. And that, my friends, brings us to Exodus chapter 1. I know, look, I know that was a whole lot of information. But it is so important that we understand this. Because these first few verses of Exodus point us back to Jacob and his 12 sons and their families coming down to Egypt. That's how we got here. There were 70 people total, and they were God's people, the promised people, except now living in a foreign land, just as God had said. And verse 7 tells us what they did in Egypt. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. As people who now know the story of Genesis, those words should sound off alarm bells in our head. The author of Exodus, who also wrote Genesis, who we believe wrote the whole Pentateuch. Derek said last week, we believe this guy named Moses, who we'll meet next week, wrote all this. He's making a clear reference for us back to the beginning. He's telling us that God's people, Israel, were fulfilling the very command that God gave Adam and Eve. They multiplied. They grew into a mighty nation, and the promises of Abraham were being fulfilled in their midst, just as God said they would be. And the land of Egypt became filled with God's people. That's great, right? That's that's the plan, right? Well, yeah, but watch what happens. Look at the next part of Exodus 1, verses 8 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We learn here that from Genesis to Exodus, some time has passed. Remember that Joseph and the Pharaoh of his day were tight. Pharaoh liked Joseph. He gave him power. He provided for his people. That day was over. There was a new Pharaoh, and he did not care for God's people. In fact, he was scared of them. And this time, to have more men meant more military might. Usually bigger nations conquered smaller nations. So the more the Israelites grew, the more of a threat they became. Therefore, Pharaoh sought to stop them from multiplying. He tried to prevent them from fulfilling their divine command. Here's another theme we see in this story. Pharaoh represents the evil anti-God spirit of the world. And he's built this entire kingdom that is opposed to the Lord. So he made the Israelites slaves. He forced them to work, it says, ruthlessly. Yet, in verse 12, we see, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So the Egyptians lived in constant dread of the Israelites. They hated them, were afraid of them. So Pharaoh moved to phase two of his plan to deal with God's people. Look at verses 15 to 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Pharaoh's next attempt to deal with the Hebrews was to bring in the two midwives. These were two Israelite women who helped deliver the babies of the other Israelite women. And he tried to get them to kill the baby boys. Now, why, why the boys and not the girls? Well, remember, the boys would have been the ones to rise up and form a military against Egypt. And that was Pharaoh's main concern. But it says the, the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. It says that twice. The midwives feared God. Here we have proof that after all that God's people had been through, becoming slaves in Egypt all these years, there were still some that remained faithful to God. It's also significant to the text that we get the names of these two midwives. Notice we don't even get the name of Pharaoh, who was likely the most powerful person on earth at the time. But we know the names of these two faithful women who obeyed at great cost to their own lives. They are an example for us. They even provide a great backstory to cover their tracks. They tell Pharaoh, hey, these Israelite women, they're just popping them out too quick. We can't get there in time. And as a result of their faithfulness, we see it again. The people multiply. Even the midwives multiplied and had their own kids. So Pharaoh has to take things a step further to an extreme level. 
Look at the last verse, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And don't miss how awful this is. Pharaoh resorted to what we would essentially call today a genocide. He called all his people to go out to find Hebrew baby boys and throw them into a river. And yet, somehow, some way, God's people persist. We know from the rest of Exodus that even this horrific act did not stop God's people from growing. Ironically, we'll see next week that this very command from Pharaoh was what led to his demise. Let's just stop there for today. And let's just sit with this tension. That's what the author Moses wants us to feel here. Remember, we're coming out of Genesis with all these promises and all this hope. What started with one man, Abraham, has now grown into a mighty nation of people. Except this nation is not in the promised land. They're in Egypt. And they aren't being blessed. As far as we can tell, they're being enslaved. And this goes on for 400 years. Yes, we know that great things are coming in this book. But let's don't rush past the weight of this first chapter. God's people knew God's promises, and yet they had to be looking around thinking, God, is this your plan? Is this what you promised our ancestor Abraham? God, have you forgotten about us here in Egypt? Did we do something wrong to deserve this? That's the opening scene for God's people. And it's a scene God's people find themselves in often throughout the Bible. And it's one I believe we find ourselves in sometimes still today. Wondering, doubting, wrestling. We have the hope of God's plan and God's word, but then we see the reality that we live in, and it doesn't always seem to match up. So let me close this morning by sharing with you three things we can do when we find ourselves in an Exodus chapter 1 season in life. Here's the first, number one. Number one, we must know God's plan of multiplication. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, the book of Genesis had not yet been written down or composed since we know it was written down by Moses. But we can be confident that God's people knew the stories about Adam and Eve and about Noah and the flood and about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because those were their ancestors. That was their people. That was their story. We don't know from the text to what extent they knew the details of their past. But part of God's covenant with Abraham was making a people who would pass down the faith and these promises. So the people of God likely knew who they were. They knew they belonged to a God who had chosen them, set them apart, and had promised to make them into a great nation. We see that in those first verses after the genealogy. What did the people do in the land of Egypt? They were fruitful and multiplied, just as they knew God wanted them to do. They knew God's plan of multiplication. Guys, we need to know the same thing today. We may be far removed from these Hebrew people. We may not be ethnically Jewish. But here's what the New Testament says about followers of Jesus today. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us over and over that through Jesus, who was the ultimate son of Abraham, we are now sons and daughters of Abraham too. We have received the very promises to him. And we are God's people too, just like the Hebrews in Egypt. Galatians 3.7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.29. And if you, Christian, are Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Galatians 4.28, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Peter says this about followers of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter's quoting there the exact language that God used when he made the promises to Abraham in his covenant. And here's what this all means. It means these people we read about throughout this series in Exodus are not some distant, unrelated people. These are our people. These are our spiritual ancestors, and we're a part of the one same plan that they were a part of. From Genesis to Revelation, God has one grand plan of redemption. There is no separate plan for Israel and the church. God has one plan to display his glory by making a people for himself through salvation in Jesus Christ. And it is so important that like our spiritual ancestors, we know this plan for ourselves. See, unlike the Israelites in Egypt, we have the entire completed word of God. We know the full picture about the coming of the Messiah Jesus and what he came to do for us. We know, even know what the future holds in Revelation. So when we go through seasons of struggle to, where we, we struggle to understand what God is doing and how it's going to work out, the first thing we need to do is know God's plan. We need to go to his word and remind ourselves that he loves us, he's for us, and he has an eternal plan to be with us, that we are his people and he is our God. Dealing with a season of doubting and waiting and suffering, like Israel and Egypt, requires first that we know God's plan. But we don't stop there. Here's the second thing we must do. Number two, we must trust God's plan of multiplication. It's one thing to know what God says he will do. It's a whole other thing to trust that he will do it. See, it's easy when you're in the promised land and you can clearly see what God is doing and everything's going great. Everything's how you envision it, just like you wanted it. But it's hard when you're in Egypt, isn't it? And things haven't turned out the way you envisioned and you are suffering and hurting and confused. As we will see in weeks to come, although Israel knew God's promised plan for them, they did not always trust him. We might even say they rarely trusted him. And it made their lives difficult. And yet all along the way, even through their stubbornness, God advanced his plan. We see that in the second part of chapter 1. Even while the Hebrews are oppressed in slavery, they continue to multiply and grow. Even as Pharaoh is actively trying to murder them, God continues to bless them and sustain them. And friends, the same thing is true for us today as God's people. Romans 8.28 says, And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Look, we can trust that God's promises are true for us, whether in the promised land or in Egypt. We may be in a season of suffering, but God will never leave us or forsake us. He will use even the worst parts of your story for your good and for his glory. We'll see this to be true in Exodus. Israel's toughest season in their nation's history becomes the greatest display of God's power and love for them. And I have seen this biblical truth in my own life. It is often the seasons in which I'm hurting, I'm confused, I'm wrestling, I'm doubting that I grow the most in my faith. Those are the seasons where I'm forced to rely on God in a whole new way. 
where I'm forced to pray with a whole new level of desperation and seek the Lord. So despite how things may seem, we can trust God and we must trust him and his plan. Here's the third and last thing we must do. Number three, we must obey God's plan of multiplication. We must obey. While in Egypt, the Israelites continued to obey God's call to multiply and grow. They did that on a national level, but we also know they did that on a personal level. We see the two midwives personally fearing God and obeying him by helping their people to multiply and grow. So when we're in seasons of suffering where things don't seem to be going according to plan, we must also obey. See, multiplication is still God's goal today. Having a people for himself to love and enjoy him forever, it's still his plan. How do we obey that today? Well, the New Testament tells us that we multiply today through evangelism and discipleship, through telling others about Jesus and teaching them how to follow him. Uh, Jesus told his followers, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That was very similar to what God told Adam and Eve, to go, be fruitful, and multiply. That's God's plan now, to make a people for himself, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue on earth. So we obey God's plan of multiplication by participating in that plan, by doing things like seeking and saving the lost. And then discipling them to walk in obedience. And then reaching the nations for his glory. That's something we all can do no matter where God has us. No matter how our lives are going. No matter what we know or don't know. So here's the question. What will you do when you find yourselves in Egypt? Will you remember the promises of God? Will you go back to his word and remind yourself of what's true? Will you trust him despite the way things may seem? And will you do what he has called you to do and simply obey the Lord? We must do these things because we are God's plan of multiplication today. Let's pray.